Check this out. Welcome to the second season of A Modern Music Industry. My name is Josiah Garrett, and today I sat down with Juliana Tedeschi, music industry publicist with six years of experience representing artists like Pigeons Playing Ping Pong and Corey Wong. Juliana owns her own PR agency in Boulder, Colorado, and today I sat down to discuss music marketing and PR moving forward in the new decade. Let's get into it. As new platforms emerge, traditional media either morphs into the new landscape or gets left behind. To be a successful PR agent, you have to challenge the status quo and be daring, innovative, and bold in your business decisions. On top of that, music marketing is incredibly competitive with a ton of freelance publicists and very narrow channels of communications with journalists and media outlets. So I've got a couple questions about this. In the first one, we can start off with a more historical question Traditionally, what were the responsibilities of a publicist and how have those responsibilities changed? Like if you were to give me a a brief description of the history of your field. So, and it's really interesting because I've worked for several people who are in like their mid 40s now. So they've been doing this for decades at this point, Mm -hmm. hearing them talk about like fax machines, receiving um, clippings via mail or like courier And how so much of it was based on like phone, mailing, and I don't want to say, I think there was a time where it was like difficult to get high tier presses because the lack of digital communication. And then it was still like press representation and giving your client um, a public profile. And I think some part of that has still never changed. It's just what constitutes getting that job done. Um, I'd say even in the last five years, it's gotten a lot harder to get press. There was definitely a time, I'd say in like the mid, like 2007, 2008, 2009, that was kind of the time of like music blogs and the music blogs were the tastemakers and they were making playlists and they were really spotlighting music that excited them that they were finding on SoundCloud and all that stuff. Absolutely. So in that era, it was definitely more about partnering with the tastemakers like Stereo Gum and Pigeons and Indie Planes. Shuffle and Pigeons and Planes, which is Absolutely. not even its own publication anymore. So I remember those being like the big buzzy publications. And now you hit it right on the head really difficult to just count on that kind of press yeah so what i uh, go ahead oh you can follow up if you want well i had my follow-up was how are magazines and and bloggers transitioning into 2020 i think a lot of them i think a lot of them are focusing on video content um there's way more podcasts than i can keep up with and there seems to always be a new podcast and podcast talking specifically with musicians popping up every single day. And I did, mm-hmm. I think podcasting and that interview medium is becoming bigger and bigger. The session videos are super important and those are great pieces of content for bands to use in other avenues like touring and booking. Absolutely. Those, yeah. Or if I'm going to a major TV booker and I have some studio sessions from Paste or Relics. Yep. Or KEXP. I can or KXP, and I can say, hey, look at, check this out. Here's a live studio version of this song from the album. This is what they look like performing. 
So I say all of those are super important, and I do be trying to be innovative and stay ahead of it. Work with my clients directly on, mm-hmm. and some of the teams already have this in place, but some of them definitely need more coaching. It's like, how can you, outside of press, get directly to your fans? Like, what are you doing direct to fan that's exclusive for the fans and keeping them engaged every step of the way? Because that's also so important in the press game is how much engagement are people getting on posts that they're making? Yep. How many fans are they have? Like, do they have how many tickets are they selling? And it's those numbers that basically entice media to be like, okay, this is worthy of coverage because it's going to get clicks, which equals ad revenue. So I don't necessarily agree with that. And I think the digital landscape has really changed sure. that entire situation because I do have conversations with journalists where it's like, I'm interested in this and this music is great, but I don't really see the numbers I need to see to want to cover this. Whereas back in the day, they may have been more excited to cover it because they were a fan themselves and interested in learning more. Because the music was fresh and the band was young. Exactly. It's like they see that as an opportunity is like, oh, nobody else has covered this band. You know, we could be the first. Yeah, it's... um, well, you gave me a lot of really good stuff there that I'd love to break down. Um, definitely, I'm going to touch on some of those as well as content marketing later. Um, well, here's one thing that maybe you'll also find interesting to include. I was speaking with one of my colleagues who works with Big Castle under Ken Weinstein, who's obviously also been doing this for many years. And she said that um, Ken mentioned like 15, 20 years ago, journalists outnumbered publicists tremendously and now we're basically in a landscape where it's flipped like there's so many publicists and so few journalists that what used to be a lot easier to get done because you had a million different people you were talking to is the opposite there's a million publicists trying to talk to like a handful of people interesting very very interesting so i guess we could go ahead and segue into another section that i have on relationships because yeah. that was a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of information. And I wondered that, you know, what, what does the landscape of publicists and journalist relationship really look like today? Mm-hmm. Um, assuming that you are trying to get in contact with like a, an established media outlet for some sort of press. Um, it definitely helps to try to be authentic in yeah. your pitching. And it's hard to do if you're trying to send out a ton of information and correspond with a ton of people. It's difficult to always be 100% authentic. But if you do have a relationship established with someone, it's important to send them a personal note and message. I have certain contacts I'm super close with and you know, you text with them or you're able to get in touch with them more directly outside of their inbox because their inbox is looking even scarier than mine. Yeah. Um, My goodness. And it's really taking the opportunities when you're out and about to just network. Um, I have some close friends in the business that I've been friends with since my internship who are now at different firms and they have different relationships. So because of that, especially when I was living in New York, you'd be at some birthday party and these journalists would be there. So trying to, it's hard to create authentic relationships sometimes when, you know, it's like, this is clearly for business 
benefit. Absolutely. And I will say there are definitely people I've been friends with in the media space, and we've never had an opportunity to work together, and we're more, like, friendly. But it's an interesting game, and some of it is really just knowledge and establishing oneself as name recognition. Do you think that prof- that professional relationships in PR are destined to become one-sided? How do you mean? As in, you know, like, they have the leverage. Like, let's say it's a journalist working for Paste Magazine and you're trying to get a band yeah. in the studio um, mm-hmm. to then leverage that in-studio performance to get them in, you know, a slot for whatever. Is the relationship that you have built with this person whom you may not know in the in the in the real world destined to become one sided like just the what is the archetype of like the the media outlet and the publicist relationship? Because I know I meet a lot of people in real life and I have great real world real life connections. But then again, I'm limited just by my immediate landscape of media yeah exactly i'd say a lot of them will say it's symbiotic at least the people i work with like they need me a lot of times just as much as i need them because they'll need to fact check something quickly and they don't have a direct line to the band or they know that the band isn't going to be able to field that response quickly enough for them so there are certain things that i can do for them to help them along but i also trying to think of like an example like when i go to a tour market Mm -hmm. those have been interesting relationships to cultivate because i don't talk to those people nearly as much um maybe a handful of times a year when i have tour tours going through the area absolutely those are definitely relationships that benefit from like longevity because at this point some of these people have been hearing from me for years and luckily i have a unique name because i've changed like there's not a ton of Juliana's. I've changed companies a few times, and that's always an interesting thing too. Is when you're you almost feel like you're starting over, and then you find the people who are like affinity to the company that you're with. So mm-hmm. that sometimes helps breed new contacts because they're like, oh, you work for this company now. Like that legitimizes you in a certain way. Absolutely. So I'd say for the most part, I need my relationships a lot because it makes things a lot easier to get done or you have more quality control almost too because you can be like questions i think you should be asking or maybe you could try asking like this sure they're they'd like to include this information can you please swap for this photo like it just makes it a little quicker to get it done or booking that pay session because you have the direct line in but at the same time they're getting a 10,000 million pitches every day every day and they can't possibly get every single email read and i know my close friends tell me who who work on the other side in editorial tell me like they see an email from me come in they're 100 percent more likely to click on my email than any of the emails they don't know but i also do try and it's hard to be 100 percent perfect it's really important to know who you're pitching for what because someone at let's say relics or live for live music they're being sent some obscure like hip-hop they're kind of like, do you even read our publications? Do you, do you know, know what you are? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the cornerstone of good PR has always been authentic relationships with, you know, symbiotic. Absolutely. 
So I think that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and also just doing your due diligence <laughs> for anybody out there listening to this. <laughs> um, it's doing a your lot due diligence of, when building those relationships is important. It's a lot of research, um, and I could spend. If you're asking me what like a typical day is, like sometimes my typical day, half, like or my typical week, has to include a day where I spend four or five hours just researching one specific thing. Like when Turquoise was releasing their movie. I needed to go and figure out who film contacts worthy of like reaching out to were. And that was, I work in music. So my music contacts are obviously very strong, but I took a lot of time to look for the right film people just to ensure like if we're sending out messaging, it's going to someone who is relevant for this type of information. Absolutely. And that answers my question of what is your process like for gathering new media outlets as a PR contact? Oh man, you have to be so scrappy. A lot of the information (laughs) is available online and you just kind of figure out where to look for it, like under contact us or about us. Or sometimes you just search like blah, 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 Mm -hmm. publication, masthead, and that will come up with a list of names. But I've done things like Googling people's names Mm -hmm. and then like email address to see if it comes up on their Twitter. Some people post it on their Twitter. Um, and then there's this really interesting, long-standing Google forum called the PR List that is a place where publicists can share information with each other. And that Ooh. is a really, it's a really, I think, because at my first job, they were so guarded with their contacts. They didn't want any networking outside of the company, which I didn't think was, I thought it was kind of weird. And, and now I live in this world where it's like, if you have a relationship with a publicist at a different company, that's also symbiotic. It's also in everyone's best interest to be like, hey, I saw you got this done. Who were you speaking with? Absolutely. And then when they come to you offering the same information and just kind of being open to helping one another, because why, why not? Like, that's being a good colleague, even if you're not at the same company anymore. But I've definitely worked at company, like my first company was so anti that that when i found out about the pr list i was like fascinated that something existed like that well that sounds like a pretty solid strategy for introducing yourself to a new media outlet a cold relationship is an immediate reference from a publicist from another agency that has you know worked with that outlet before or just being like hey you're friends with my friend and i saw that they sent me this article you wrote and i loved the topic like sometimes I do just try to reach out especially when someone is new in their position if an editor changes over just to make contact without a pitch oh yeah and it has varied it has varied um responses but I at least like to try I've made some contacts that way or trying to get an in-person with someone as soon as you make that in-person connection it like changes the dynamic completely or even just chatting on the phone for a second Um, it it humanizes the experience absolutely would you say that could be like your your best piece of advice for anybody doing diy publicity just reaching out and um authentically and just trying to establish contact without pitching kind of thing yeah, well, or getting I, people out in person and or on the phone just to like humanize yourself. <laughs> I guess humanizing yourself and being authentic is is really the the golden rule, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I think it's that. And 
I definitely think that's helped me a lot. Um, and it's interesting to think about some of my friendships that are like super authentic in this business now and how they've come about over the years. Because at first it was like, you're a publicist for this band. Like I should get to know this person. And now it's like, what are, what did you do this weekend? Um, yeah, totally unrelated absolutely. to work. Like, tell me about your life. How's your girlfriend? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How's your dog? How's your mom doing? I think that's super important. I also think it's important, the researching component, because if you don't know what kind of contacts you should be reaching out to, like if you don't know that at any given daily newspaper, there's a handful of different people you could be reaching out to, like the features editor is one person. There's Absolutely. So Doing your due diligence. There's not a lot of music editors anymore, so understanding like who might be, instead of a music editor, the editor to go to, or sure. establishing a network of freelancers even is so helpful, like knowing this freelancer writes for these 10 things across the country and just yep. keeping in touch with them over the years. That also, I get a lot done through freelancers because if you have a writer already on lock, it's so much easier to go to the editor and be like, hey, so-and-so would like to do this. And then the, the freelancer goes to the editor and is like, hey, I really want to write this. That's, that's going to get it done a little faster. Too. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a question for you. How often do digital yeah. outlets just copy and paste what you send them verbatim? Ooh, uh, more often than I would like to <laughs> admit. It depends on, like a press release will generally be regurgitated almost gotcha. word for word. Some things might be changed up um, or they might like, cut out pieces that I provided in the press release. So usually I write a press release with the intention that most of it will be regurgitated, but there are occasional things where I thought I was going to be getting more of like a feature piece and it is what I sent them as yep. far as like the facts, like here's the facts that you should be sure to include. It's like, that's just like in there not in their own words. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's pretty yeah. often but I try not to be too... It used to upset me more than it does now just because there's benefits to it. I mean, I'm spoon-feeding exactly what I want them to say, and so they're saying it the way I'd like them to say it. That helps. Mm -hmm. um, they're also inundated. You might as well just and give you they're... access to their WordPress site and let you post <laughs> it yourself. It's, al it's almost like that, um, which is... I mean, that, that has a, a journalistic integrity problem. Sure. an ethical quarry sure. to consider. However, I mean, definitely the things that make it into like feature profiles and interviews are super authentic, but news stories are usually more or less the same. Um, and then some of the smaller publications that aren't like major national news sources or, I mean, it never happens with like a daily or a weekly newspaper. Those are always going to write Those their own words. Going to write their own words. Got it. They have a very specific integrity that they abide to. But some of the smaller blogs and people who do this literally on the side of a full time job, how much can you fault them when they're they're still like I have a really good friend of mine who he has a blog called Speaking to My Good Eye. Um and for a blog out of New Jersey, New York area, it used to get a shit ton of traffic. Yep. He doesn't keep up with it the same way anymore because he's mm -hmm. gotten so inundated mm -hmm. with like his full-time job and, you know, but he has a, a team of contributors who does this for free and he doesn't make any money on it. It was like a passion project of his Absolutely. and he kept it going for many years. So if someone's just doing it 
I have to rely on people who are doing it literally for the sheer love of music and writing about it when they're not really getting anything out of it, maybe other than like tickets to a show or like a stream to the record before it's out. Absolutely. Or just a remembrance of the, the good times of 2009 when they had the yeah, exactly. clickers on their blog. So um, exactly. that, that actually uh, transitions into another question quite well. And um, this is kind of taking into consideration the change in landscape, the, the traffic dwindling year after year on people's private blogs, which used to be a really trusted source of music yeah. news and information and where to find the new bands. And then, you know, well, so the question is, what does your if if you were to look at all of your contacts and maybe put them in a pie chart based on mm -hmm. the type of media outlet, what are the what are the splits look like? What is the percentage of small blogs, of podcasts, of in-studio performances, of TV, of mm -hmm. um, live web shows, and then of those categories, what do you think kind of holds the most weight for getting a feature in? Um, I'd say, given the nature of my band, there's probably like a large percentage, let's say maybe like 25% because it's the entire country, that's like tour-related media. And that's tour like local media. dailies and, and weeklies, and that's very focused on the like hyper-local focus media okay. and that's gonna have some stuff that's like radio and tv just in there but it's like hyper local media i'll say a quarter of it is that um i'd say small blogs are gonna be a lot bigger and those are not necessarily blogs that i correspond with directly all the time like a lot of times that's just like sending a press release and seeing what happens and getting stuff coming back at me mm -hmm. um that's probably maybe 25% in there too. Okay. 15% going to be the bigger stuff. And that's going to be like digital and things that are also digital print. Like let's say Relics Magazine, Live for Life Music, sure. uh, Billboard. Yeah. Um, let's say 15% there. Where am I at? 50, 65. Don't worry about the uh, percentages. We can go up to 130. <laughs> um, and then like sessions is definitely a lot smaller, especially ones that I feel like I work with a lot. There are a few heavy hitter ones like Paste does really well. And I've started establishing really great contacts with um, the Adult Swim Fish Center booker. She does the booking for bands on the Adult Swim. Um, yeah, I had uh, some buddies in my that show. actually. Yeah, and I have, like, Turquoise is going to do that in a couple weeks, and her and I are in touch a lot, so that's a very small percentage. I'd say there's, like, three to five bookers in that category that are key, in my yeah. opinion, to, like, be in touch with, um, like, GM in the van. Obviously, I have the understanding of who I need to go to for Tiny Desk, but it's been... None of my clients have kind of fit in that space where they'd be, Tiny Desk would be interested. Like, I'm still very much trying to build the buzz enough so when I go over there, I'm like, it's like, hey, this is a shoe-in for you. Like, why yeah. haven't you covered this yet? Yeah. So there's been other ways to, like, work around that. Um, 
to get things ready because you know there's an interesting connotation with like jam band live music stuff where like indie stuff indie publications cool stuff doesn't like think it's cool enough to cover yeah um so that kind of even just the nature of like where i tend to work Mm -hmm. is offset yeah there's There's a lot of stuff that becomes like yeah so there's that definitely like there's a barrier that i try to penetrate Mm -hmm. by doing other stuff outside Mm -hmm. And that's also where that engagement comes in and is really important. But there is a cultural barrier for sure, genre barrier. Um, And I'd say that inhibits a lot of coverage on things that are more traditionally covering like indie shoegazy bands and um, like avant-garde hip hop. But I mean, that's that's the point of these, you know, curated media outlets is it's is it's supposed to be curated it's supposed to kind of stay niche in an audience so maybe you know you don't need stereo gum to cover (laughs) pigeon playing ping pong's latest i know and like (laughs) one day i i'd be i'd be amazed to see stereo gum cover pigeons but for example i think turquoise could be a band because they're one of those bands that's very um genre fluid like they're not necessarily Mm -hmm. a jam band they can jam but they definitely have songs that are a little bit more in the indie space so like toying with that has been interesting and i do try and be very curated in like who i think should be reached out to for what band because or and it's always fun to find out like who is the jam band fan like who's a big fish head that you had no idea about like trying to like play on that and being like cover this band they're they're kind of they're you like jam bands so you might like kind of so i have a um i want to i want to i do want to move on to branding real quick because that was a great segue um but i uh i have a quick question for you that i want you to answer super fast is um what is the value that you put on radio and we'll do this before we go into branding like sirius xm college radio are you do you care at all Yes, I I do care about radio, especially in tour markets. I think I do a lot of radio interviews across the country when bands are touring through markets or set up ticket giveaways or send them tracks for airplay. I think NPR affiliates are super important because I worked with Ghostlight around a record release and we got one song on WXPN and it got so much play on WXPN that it ended up on the NPR website. Um, Pigeons is doing a World Cafe thing with WXPN and that's Mm going to end up on NPR. So I think NPR affiliates are super duper important and I do think there's definitely people still listening. Um, And then SiriusXM is tricky because it is so genre niched Mm -hmm. and a lot of those channels, I finally have a car so I listen to it now, um, (laughs) are very artist centric. So with Jamon going away, a lot changed as far as like what I've been able to do for my artists in the SXM space. Um, So I'm still trying to figure out like what the new territory is because I don't really feel like there's a space for them anymore. That's interesting. That's, that's interesting. And and I, I, uh, I was, um, I was definitely paying attention to that landscape uh, a few years ago, and then when they announced the jam on, you know, I've been trying to build a relationship with the um, 
the the four hosts over at Jam On for quite a while, and it has been incredibly yeah. difficult. Um, Ari yeah. Fink being the person I've gotten the closest to, uh, but even that, you know, with the with that station, you know, dissolving, it's like, oh, oof, okay. <laughs> and I can't even get an answer. I don't even have I, a, an outlet well, on this. <laughs> and back to relationships on that front, like I've had a relationship with that station for years now, and now that everything's changed, like I can't even get an answer of yeah. what might be a good fit in this current situation. Like, are there any shows where you might want bands to talk about their favorite fish sets on the fish radio? Absolutely. Yes or no? Like, Absolutely. I just want an answer. And that's, that's discouraging when you feel like you've established a relationship and then someone stops giving you the time of day. Well, you should be happy to know that I've heard pigeons <laughs> playing ping pong on the old jam on station many times. So your work is noticed. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, yeah, I so missed Jam uh, On. It was great. <laughs> I miss it too. Um, let's uh, move on quickly to branding because uh, I know yeah. I'm taking up a good chunk of your day here. No, it's okay. This is good. So Excellent. let's get let's get through your questions. You did prepare them. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I try to be prepared. <laughs> I'm definitely not trying to waste your time. It's more valuable than my own. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, say that necessarily, but I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> At least during working hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, branding. I was introduced to a concept called Embassy Theory by a friend and colleague of mine, Booty Vogt, who's the artist manager of San Holo. He runs Heroic and Bitbird, which is a record label based out of the Netherlands. He is a visionary when it comes to digital marketing and um, I mean, he's just absolutely brilliant. He has his finger on the pulse of fan engagement, of building a tribe, of of utilizing. I mean, he was the first person to do so many things in the digital space. And he created this concept of embassy theory. And embassy theory states that a brand must be coherent everywhere. At all mm -hmm. points of interaction, social media channels, streaming profiles, live shows, etc., Every point of interaction should be should represent the aesthetic of the brand and artist, just like an embassy represents the culture of a country. Mm -hmm. So if you go into the French embassy in the United States, it's full of French artifacts, of French culture. They're speaking the French language. It's literally territory of France, which leads me to two questions when kind of trying to put this in the perspective of music marketing. And the first one is how important is an artist's aesthetic? And the second question of is, uh, who are some of your favorite examples of artists properly executing their aesthetic online and in a live setting? And my example for this would be Wolfpack. Yeah. And what they're amazing, what's amazing about Wolfpack is how DIY independent they've been this entire time. And entire it's almost time. miraculous that um, they've been able to do what they've been able to do. And it's, it's, it's amazing. And some part of that, I would say for them is because it was so DIY and outside the box that mm -hmm. it worked because mm -hmm. people paid attention. Um, so I'd say that's a great example. Too Many I think Zoos Turquoise, has a really interesting aesthetic as well. They have an interesting aesthetic and it's definitely evolved. I think they're still very much what they were. I think that's a one really important um, cornerstone to touch on as far as when you're talking about like how important is a brand for an artist? I think it's very important, but I think it's even more important to ensure that brand speaks to 
the personality of the band and it should feel authentic. Absolutely. Because if it doesn't feel authentic and it feels kind of forced, that's when you start getting into like gimmicky or yeah, I don't know. Some of the pop stars, I find it interesting that they're almost like new people every time they have an album. I don't necessarily like that. I like watching a brand evolve. Interesting. Yeah, they kind of they have to rebrand themselves. They do new hair release. colors and styles, mm-hmm. and it's it's very interesting. Whereas like. I mean, I'll say Turquoise is an interesting example because long before I worked with them, I I was a fan of the band and I knew who they were. And I thought the color thing was just like, it was electrifying to see live. And now they've transitioned into this new aesthetic and it's still very much Turquoise because of the way they pull it off. But it's completely new and exciting. And I love it. It's so amazing. And they just changed it and like it didn't lose any of its personality in the process, which I think is super amazing. Or like pigeons flying ping pong, like they're pretty consistent across the board when it comes to their messaging and Mm -hmm. their whimsical, you know, nature of just like having fun and being silly people. Um, I'm a big fan of Lana Del Rey and she does that whole enigmatic, elusive, like, old You know, you and my girlfriend both, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I love her, and Lady Gaga, too. Like, those are personalities that aren't, like, that's not, that's the stage name, and there's an entire, like, character that comes out of it, which I think is amazing. But across the board, like, they're consistent with how they, like, both of those artists, seemingly are directly engaging with their fans on their Instagram, for example. Like, it seems that Lana Del Rey and Lady Gaga are posting on their own social accounts. And I think that's something that's really cool, too, for fans is feeling like they have a direct line in because on some of the the Facebook pages, it seems like it's more like the brand speaking. Yeah. And then there's, you know, a place to see the artist. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so I guess a follow up on that. When, if if an artist, if you are working with an artist who has a really good aesthetic, how much emphasis? And this is also kind of transitioning into the final section of this interview, which is focused on um, the actual PR campaign itself, mm-hmm. the thing that you would lead. Um, how much emphasis would you put on content marketing? within the aesthetic and like within the PR release, I should say. Do you mean like having like video assets and um, photos? And... No, I, I'm talking more like broad spectrum PR so or content. So like Turquoise making a movie. Okay. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Reaching out of the genre of their music and like creating a new type of piece of content to interact with people. Like you remember, do you remember the 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 Facebook uh, band Clowncore, and they had that one I video don't. that went super viral. Or no, like I the, don't. I need to look them up. <laughs> the uh, the Wolfpack video where they're like cooking. Yeah. Um, you know these these like other bold innovative strategies of content marketing. So I work with this band called Thank You Scientists. They're like a New Jersey prog rock jazzy fusion band. Like they're 
I call I'm them orchestral it. prog rock. They're they're amazing, but they kind of have that on lock because they're very DIY. So, um, and they do the weirdest videos. So, for example, they did a cover of Eddie Murphy's "Party All the Time" mm-hmm. in a very prog rock style, and they did up in like for a lot of the video, frame by frame, it was like a recreation of the video, and that went so they got so many views in 48 hours, and I had little press push behind it. It was all organic. Mm. And so I'd say things like that are really important, especially when you're trying to stand out against the grain. And the thing about Thank You Scientist, with their brand, it's just weird internet meme style. Like, they're all about the weird things sure. that make people uncomfortable. Yeah. They have a naked old man. Is that they are they have a na- weird, yeah. Yeah. They have a naked old man playing, like, in the video and that's the same naked old man in their promo video for the record and that is great that that's they awesome. project yeah. that they project behind them when they're touring so like i think it's important to figure out you know what that is but it also is important to execute it well because if it's not executed well yeah. um, it can easily flop Absolutely. Which I've seen some stuff. I've been excited to receive stuff that's been described to me, and then I feel like the concept didn't quite hit when it was executed. And Absolutely. Yeah. I love a, the example of, um, like, Coolio has got a cookbook, Cooking with Coolio. Yeah. And uh, Action Bronson has a a, um, a sort of um, Anthony Bourdain-style sh- uh, food show called Fuck That's Delicious. Oh, yeah, exactly. So I think, yeah. like, those things... It it keeps people relevant outside of music. And I think that's one of the cornerstones of today's media yeah. landscape, too, is like if you can't get through in the music space, how else are you going to, Absolutely. It's to like, break it's, out? It's like brands don't understand that it's like the music isn't the commodity. The music is the marketing and the attention is the commodity. So anything else that you can do outside of music to garner attention is ultimately good for your brand. Yeah, and, like, there's people who love music who don't read music publications, you know? Like, they're reading the lifestyle publications, or maybe they're a big fan of, like, golf or beer or something, and it's just reaching them outside of the music space. Absolutely. Well, that is awesome. Um, I guess let's move into a lightning round. So I'm going to ask you 10 uh, really quick questions. And then if you could just give me like super immediate responses uh, and we can keep them pretty short. I'll try try not to uh, get carried away on any tangents on this one. You ready? You ready for the lightning round? I am. This is the first time I've ever tried this. So (laughs) we'll we'll give it a go. Okay. Um, Question number one. (laughs) We'll give it a go. How much value is in a press release realistically? That's an interesting question. I think it really depends on what the press release is sharing and how much the media is paying attention to what the band shares directly on socials. I think most press releases I send... I don't know. Sorry, I'm I'm not good at this lightning no, you, thing either. You know what? It's not it's not that great of a question. It's not framed no, it's very good. well. There's no lead. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I guess I'm just like overthinking it. Um, right. The press release has a specific place, and I think that there's going to always be more information in what I send than what's going to be shared directly on socials. Sure. 
So from like a news perspective, I think the press release has more value than what a problem I run into a lot with like turquoise and pigeons, especially is if they go up on socials with something before I send out my press release, the media will cover what was on socials. And then I have a press release that has press quotes and more specific information and details. So I think my press release in that situation, I try to make sure we coordinate it so it's not like overlooked. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And, and the reason I included that question is because I've I've talked to a lot of, you know, because w- w- publishing the book and I publish a lot of articles online and I try and I, I work really hard to build one on one relationships with people around the world, really, when it comes to music marketing and just entering the industry as a musician in general. And the thing that I get the most um, <laughs> kind of uh, people being disenfranchised with music marketing and PR is because they have this notion that they gather a list of of PR outlets and then they send a press release and then that's all they do and they don't get any responses and they don't get any feedback and they certainly don't get any placements and it kind of ruins the whole experience for them. It's like, oh, well, this is impossible. Like, I'm not even going to try. Yeah, I think one of the most important cornerstones that I've learned over the years when it comes to a press release and just general PR strategy is like, what is your narrative and really selling that narrative and dialing it in and knowing where you take the narrative in one direction versus another, depending on who you're talking to. And I'd agree that if you just send a press release without following up on it, um, it's going to flop. It's going to, yeah, there's, cause there's so many going into an inbox, you know, and some people have their inboxes segmented like promotional versus new mail. And those press releases are going to end up in the promotional just based on like the email service thing. So there's, there's some value in that statement. (laughs) Cool. Thank you. Okay. Uh, next question. So in the digital landscape, I, I personally don't believe that there is, um, that there is, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I should have written this down. That there is continuity. So like mm-hmm. in the 90s, if you were in the 90s, if you were watching <laughs> a TV show, it would be, you know, one episode and then you wait a week and it's the next episode and you wait a week mm-hmm. and it's the next episode. And they kind of come in like in waves. Uh, yeah. And, and there is a sequential release of information. But today, it's sort of like the the sequentiality of access to information is gone. And, you know, you aren't guaranteed being in social media to be able to get your message in front of the right people in an order. So Mm -hmm. it's like people can put out any amount of information at any time, any order. I was releasing Mm -hmm. like a a music industry success series and I was really... (laughs) You know, I was like, well, I'm going to I'm going to do it like a course, like I'm going to start with an intro and then I'm going to break everything down and I'll release everything every couple of days. But I found people would tune in and out at different points. It was more of like a pick your own adventure watching experience, yeah. um, which kind of leads into my next question, which is how important is exclusivity and like mm-hmm. what does a timeline look like for you when you are looking for press for a record? So. I think exclusivity is super important because that's a a leveraging tool, especially when you're trying to garner new press or bigger press than you've been able to have in the past, because ultimately like that goes back to engagement and clicks. Like if someone's running something for the first time, feasibly the fans are going there to listen 
and read about it. And there's some artists I work with who, while they understand the importance of exclusivity, they almost don't want to take away from the traction they'd get initially by putting it up on Spotify. So like we always have these interesting conversations where it's like, okay, that's one avenue, but if we're really trying to build press profile, like we have to garner something here that's exclusive. So how do we reconcile this? Okay, yeah. Absolutely. And those are a lot of different conversations. So I think exclusivity is really important and um in my opinion, press is and not even just in my opinion. Some people might disagree, but in my experience, especially press happens before the record is out because of the exclusivity and the leveraging that you're given with the lead time and the strategy you're able to implement. So I generally recommend for an album, especially no less than three months of lead time. Should you begin your campaign to the release date of a record? Okay. Anything more than that, you're, you're going to run into problems because sometimes it takes three weeks to secure a, a single premiere. Sometimes it takes a month. Sometimes it takes two days. You, you never know. And the more lead time you have, the better chance you have at landing something because okay. you have time to follow up to ensure your email is seen. If someone's getting five emails from you, they're going to, and keeps popping up there, they might be like, what, what the heck is this? <laughs> you yeah, know, like they're going to open me. it. And yeah. I'm not super proud of it now and it, it's kind of hilarious but like i i got us banned on npr um with a music video premiere during my first job and it was the first npr president of the company and it was because i emailed bob boylan 30 times and i called him five there like, you go he, <laughs> okay. so you, say three, he, you say three months he took yeah three months of a campaign and i'd say that press hit itself was like a two-month situation got it between emails and phone calls. It was ridiculous. And that now I don't know if I would be so ambitious. Um, usually I try to like back off at a certain point, well, it but paid off. he also, it paid off. He seemed to be entertained by my persistence. <laughs> and um, also he's someone who has a crazy inbox. So like, obviously that was something that kept standing out. So it was something that caught his eye. And that's, definitely um important and that's why lead time is important okay when bands come to me and they're like my album's out next week or even in a month i'm just like you know there's stuff you could do but i'd advise there's not much pushing it which actually leads me really nicely into my next question which is what is your opinion on the secret release or the like mm -hmm. surprise we've dropped surprise. an album today <laughs> the surprise release i think that only works in situations where you've already very much established your voice, your audience and so on and so forth. Like Beyonce did it. Yep. You know, she's a multi-million fan kind of artist. Yeah. So everyone's going to pay attention and the media is going to pay attention automatically. If right. you're not in that position, I'm not sure that that's the best thing to do. And in the space I work within, people will do that with like Nugs.net releases or a live concert stream um, on Facebook after the fact that it's happened. And I think those things are really cool because that definitely is for the fans. Yeah. But if you don't have an engaged audience on a level where like if you release something and it's just going into the void, I think that's a wasted opportunity just because it takes a lot of heart and soul and effort to put something together, like an album, even a song. And so if you're just throwing it out into the void, 
you're not necessarily harnessing all that you could with it. You know, and, I'm going to get a soundbite um, of that, and I'm going to send it to about 30 people. <laughs> <laughs> I, need to hear I it. mean, it's a conversation I have all the time, and even with some of my artists who have been doing this for a while, like, everyone's so ambitious and overly ambitious, and I'm just like, I know you really want to put this out because you've been sitting on it for so long, but, like, we've just gotten it to the point of completion, and, like, let's not rush it in the final moment. Like, we can wait a few more weeks, or we can do a couple more months. Let's time it with something important. Absolutely. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, okay, no problem. Just a couple more in this lightning round. Yeah. <laughs> Less of a lightning <laughs> round than I anticipated. I, I'm new no, at this. Okay. We'll, we'll figure it out. Um, what is something that you see your contemporaries do incorrectly? And this is contemporaries within the PR field or like yeah. a, a, you know, like a new PR um, person. Well, I think based on what I hear, especially from some of my journalist friends, um, I think a lot of people are sloppy and they're not like, of course, I make typos. I'm a human. Everyone makes errors. But you know, being super sloppy and always sending stuff out, that's clearly not meant for that person. Mm -hmm. I used to make some of these mistakes as a rookie, but it's it's just like being sloppy, um, making an email like in Gmail now, if things have been copy and pasted, like sometimes you can tell because the formatting's all wonky, you know, doing stuff like that, that just kind of is a clear red flag that this was a mass message without it appearing like one like you can make it look like it's a mass message and it's less resisted so i think sloppiness i think not really understanding who their audience is mm -hmm. yeah just um, not doing the due diligence to make sure that what you're promoting is will match with the the audience of the network and a complaint i get a lot when clients i have people who switch over and start working with me and they tell me horror stories of just feeling like they got backburnered because they were on a roster with like huge artists who were getting all the attention and then like their tour dates weren't getting pitched or their album wasn't getting pitched and so I think some of it is just like laziness um, or just inability to complete the, the work as promised is another that's error awesome. people make or and then like maybe not understanding the importance of other media landscapes got it yeah um yeah i feel like there's a you know in a, in the changing field there is always new information to be learned about how to kind of operate in the field and um yeah it's unfortunate i i actually took a a pr and marketing class um at the at the University of Georgia where I studied and it was a it was a great class very informative but it was very very focused on hyper traditional um you know mm -hmm. like up until 2009 like talking to blogs and 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 we didn't talk about digital we didn't talk about content we didn't talk about branding wow. we didn't talk about socials we didn't talk about <laughs> what to fan we didn't talk about any of the really important things that artists <laughs> need to be working on so that's insane yeah so, okay, uh, moving on, I guess actually segues nicely. What are some digital media trends that you see rising in 2020 and beyond? So, like, where are you going to be putting your emphasis moving forward in the next five years? I think 
I mean, so much is focused on playlisting on Spotify, and I feel like they might start building that platform out to be more of like a catch-all. Like, you can come here for video content. Here's a little bit. I think they would benefit if they did something like Bandcamp blog, where they're like writing editorial some in some places in like the Spotify platform. So that's something I would probably keep my eye on. Um, I do think session videos or like interviews that interview series that run on YouTube. Those are super important to um, continually watch. And then, as I mentioned, like there's so many podcasts. So kind of just seeing which podcasts are sticking around and which are getting garnering large audiences. Yep. Um, Same with web shows. Are all super important. Yeah. Web shows. And then seeing kind of like outside of music, what web shows like to feature artist interviews that are maybe about something totally different and kind of yeah. finding a space in there. That's amazing. So my next question is, what is your opinion on Submit Hub? Submit uh, I, I would like, my, my opinion, I wouldn't say is like, like the best opinion. I, I have a weird opinion of them. I think there's some amazing innovation there mm-hmm. in the fact that Again, some of these bloggers are doing it for free, so it allows them to monetize in a certain way. I kind of hate pay-to-play because that's not what PR has been traditionally. Sure. But again, it's it's a period of innovation. But I will say, I feel like a lot of times the feedback I get when I do submit something um, with a credit is so generic that they just like wrote something to fulfill the duty. So I think that there's just a lack of quality control in that sense like the feedback i get when i talk to another publicist friend of mine is just ridiculous and it's it's hilarious and almost deserves its own instagram account where it's like okay are you are there, you that serious should be an ins- i would follow that instagram or reddit thread. yeah yeah we like we like talked about starting one because the feedback is just ridiculous so while I think it's cool and it does allow for some education behind these blogs because there are some, you know, genre tags or descriptions where it's like in one place you can learn as sure. a directory. Sure. Yeah. I do think that there is a lot of, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Bypassing it as far as like what the duty and responsibility is and accepting that credit, like passing on the song and writing some generic, like, something about the melody or production sure. when, you know, I don't really agree with you knowing who produced this record. Yeah, is, absolutely. Is, it's angering. <laughs> well, that's, you know, and, and I agree that I think that the, the philosophy of pay to play is inherently wrong. Um, and I, I feel like playlist pitching is also leaning into that territory. Um, at least it has been, it was in 2019. I saw a lot of playlist pitching, playlist services companies pop up, um, that seemed to kind of capitalize on the frenzy of a lot of people wanting to be curators and making playlists that weren't getting listens. Um, and it kind of just put a really bad taste in my mouth. And certainly my experience with Submit Hub, uh, has, has left the same taste in my mouth, um, but I mean, you know, you gotta try. <laughs> you gotta try everything, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, we'll move on. Next question. Uh, and so this is um, 
kind of more on the organizational side of how you stay organized, what are some of the digital tools that you use every day? Hmm, like I Gmail. use Google. Is there a specific yeah, system that you use to manage media outreach and placements? Um, I use I use a combination of like Google spreadsheets and Google documents and um, Mailchimp for press release servicing. And then I try to keep press reports in Google Docs. So I do, I mean, I say Google, like across the board, I use Google like notifications and right. I do Google, Google. searches. Um, and in Gmail, I used to have, I still have like a third party app that helps with some sense of like reminders or scheduling. Um, but now Google seems to have integrated that into Gmail itself. So like I'll snooze things when I like I'll send an email and if I know I want to follow up in three weeks, I'll I'll make it pop up again in three weeks. So um, a lot of that is cloud based in Google. And then I keep trying to keep a planner, um, a physical planner, physical planner where I can write yeah. write to do list down. And that's kind of how I manage my day-to-day -day. i have a couple teams who use like asana um do projects manage larger projects and i as much as i love asana i have a hard time um wanting to take the time i guess to to organize myself in that way mm -hmm. <laughs> so i'm trying to get better at that okay cool yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Google and, and the suite of options that Google lays out to you and the integration is just amazing. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big supporter of that, of that program, of that platform as well. I mean, well, shoot. All right. We are, um, we are about wrapped up. I have only one more question for you. It is a pretty simple question and yet may be the toughest that you've had to answer today. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. How would you define what you do in one sentence? In one sentence. In one sentence. I. I need a. I need a subtitle for this. <laughs> uh, let's think about this. I spread the word about what you have going on and coming up, and do my best to make sure it's getting to the right people. That's pretty solid. That's good. <laughs> the bridge between the artist and the media. <laughs> Which. And I run into this now, too, as some of my artists are getting bigger. Um, there is definitely some resistance to that, like as the artist becomes less available. And all I have to say to that is sometimes the artist becomes less available to me as they grow, too. And I'm working increasingly with their management team. Sure. And the artist isn't directly accessible to me either. So when people get upset at me that an artist can't do an interview or they can't like they're they're getting they're texting my artist and my artist is saying hey can you reach out to this person to take care of this and they're still like ignoring my emails it's like you know that's what i'm here to do they have <laughs> me here to organize this aspect and field these requests and like you should honor the chain of communication <laughs> absolutely so i uh I, th that was all the questions that i had written down and, and thank you so much for taking the time <laughs> yeah, to course. answer them i have just uh, one more question if you have the time and this is just something i thought of yeah of course um what are the challenges, what are the differences between being a PR agent for a big firm and then transitioning to owning your own agency and working with bands that way? 
Can so you repeat the, the, that one more time? The cross between, um, like, not just being a PR agent, but being a business owner. Oh, there's, like, a new set of responsibilities, for sure, um, because I now have to keep track of finances, expenses. I have to pay myself. Um, Got to get paid. So that's been the biggest change. I find that I'm almost more motivated because it's for me. And if something were to happen or a client was to leave, that's more, it's a lot more detrimental than if I was at a firm and had a salary, you know? So there's some motivation there, but I do work more strange hours than I used to have to for yep. sure. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it used to but be just a job my, and now it's your whole life. <laughs> it is. It bleeds into my life in new ways for sure. Um, but it does have like its benefits. I love being able to, you know, this weekend after Jam Cruise, like I'm in Florida visiting my grandmother and being able to do work from here is great. I did have some, the, the day back from Jam Cruise, I like put in a ton of hours in the morning. I think I did like five hours straight of work, took a break. Mm -hmm. And then I worked from like eight to 1 a.m., 8 p.m. to 1 a.m., like putting in the same amount of time, but just having some, I guess, flexibility of when that time happens is cool. Um, but at the same time, like my vacations get interrupted a lot and my nights and weekends, I have to drop what I'm doing sometimes. So, it's right. a, you know, it's a double-edged sword. There's flexibility, but I still do work in a very client-dependent space. And at the end of the day, like I really do try to cater to my clients' needs. Right. Well, as I think as I possibly it, can. <laughs> Thank it, you. It's an incredibly respectful thing to do to be a business <laughs> owner and to somehow manage your way in this nuts industry. <laughs> yes, very nuts. And I, I mean, it's great. I am very fortunate to have been able to uh, start working for myself, and I couldn't have done it without the support of so many of my editorial friends and so many of my clients who have stuck with me through the transition. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Well, that's it. That's all the questions I have for you. Thank you so much great. for being on the show. Do you have any closing statements or anything that you want to add? You could get put a plug in here if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to hear about my side of things and wanting to speak with me. It's very humbling when someone notices your work and wants to just learn more about you and what you do. So thank you so much for, for that too, Josiah. Absolutely. Of course. I'm, I'm happy to pick your brain. I'm learning, you know, <laughs> I'm building a relationship with you. There's a tip for thank chat you. going on in the background. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much, Josiah. I appreciate great. it. Thank you so much, Juliana. Have a great day and enjoy Florida. <laughs> thank you. Yes, ma'am. All right. I'll talk to you Bye. soon. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Well, that wraps up our interview. I hope you learned something. I know I definitely did. Juliana's agency is called Crown Jewel PR. Thank you for listening. Reach out with any questions, comments. I'd love to hear back from you. Have a good one.